And today we're beginning a series called Habits of the House. And we're going to be talking through kind of some of the habits, some of the values of this house of Harbor Church. And habits are fascinating because habits, whether by design or by default, tend to shape who we are. That so many of us have habits that we don't even necessarily know where or how we picked them up, but we have habits that have shaped our lives. And if you think about the habits that you have in your own life, many of those habits were shaped within the house that you grew up in. Uh, You have habits that anyone else would probably think is strange, but inside the walls of your home, they are normal. Some of you in this house are are probably shoes off at the door houses. Anybody a shoes off at the door house? I see, yeah, you're like timid. You can say that you're, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. But as soon as you walk in the door, those shoes come off. I did not grow up in a house where the shoes came off at the door. It never even crossed my mind. I don't remember having any friends whose houses were like that. I just didn't know. And then I started dating Kristen and her family, they are very serious shoes off at the door people. And they take this very seriously. No one forgets about it. Everybody takes their shoes off in the garage before they enter the house. And to this day, because I did not grow up in a house where that was the norm, it is not imprinted on my brain. To this day, every time I go and visit Kristen's family, I walk straight in the house, through the hall, through the living room, through the kitchen where everyone is usually meeting. And I immediately recognize all the bare feet. And I'm like, back in my way, back out to the garage to take my shoes off because we were not that kind of house. We were not a shoes off at the door house. I have this really distinct memory from when I was like nine or 10 years old and I was in the car with this family that went to our church and the, their son who was about my age was sitting next to me. Their dad was driving and his older sister was in, in the uh, passenger seat up front and we're driving and we pull into their driveway and I unclick my seatbelt and immediately the kid next to me went, <gasps> And the dad, the dad, as soon as he did that, the dad went, oops. And I'm like, what is going on? The sound of this situation is literally like imprinted on my brain. It was like, click, (gasps) oops. And I was like, what is even happening? And the dad, the dad said, oh, we have a rule in our family that no one unbuckles their seatbelt until the engine is off. And then he like clearly put the engine off and I heard like, click, click, click. And I was like, I think these people are sociopaths. Like, this is like, something is very off with this situation. It just did not, like, I was like, we're in the driveway parked. I think we're going to be okay, but we have to wait till the engine's off. Plus, I feel like that could be a real, like, control situation. Like, what if they just sit there and don't turn the engine off? But when you start to think about your own family and your own lives, we all have these weird habits of our house. My family, this habit wasn't so weird, but every Friday, every Thursday, actually, we had family night. It was like a non-negotiable. We had family night in our house, and we would, my mom would make homemade pizza, and we would watch like whatever show that our family was into at that time. In my like years that I really remembered, it was home improvement. Does anybody remember home improvement? The family loved home improvement. Mom would make homemade pizza. But she also made, uh, as kind of, a precursor to the pizza, this uh, just delicious dish that we refer to simply as cheese and sauce. I'm just saying cheese and sauce, nothing more. And the ingredients to this were cheese and sauce. And she would take a little bit of the cheese that was left over from the pizza and put it in a mug, and then she'd pour a little bit of sauce over it. She would heat it up in the microwave, and like I would eat that. And my whole family would eat it. And, I was, and as I've gotten older, I've thought that was really strange. And yet to this day, I was at her house a few months ago. She made homemade pizza. And I was like, you know what I kind of want? And my 43-year-old brother was like, cheese and sauce for sure. 
And, and we all got down on the cheese and sauce. And for the first time in my life, I asked my mom, how did this even come to be? Because I, I don't even, even now as we are partaking of it, I'm not sure why we do this. And she was like, oh, actually one time uh, you actually were causing a big ruckus and really complaining that dinner was not ready yet. This was all I had. The pizzas were going to be cooking for a long time. I was like, oh, I'll make some cheese and sauce. She just totally made it up and handed it to me and ate it. Thus started like a 30-year tradition in our family of eating the cheese and sauce before the pizza. But I, for nearly 30 years, did not know why we did that. I just knew that we did that. And that is a little bit of my fear when we come into this place on the weekends is that sometimes we may participate in the things of the house and not know why we are doing them. That that we may actually engage in the habits of the house and not actually know the importance of why we do what we do. And so as we talk over the next few weeks about the habits of the house, this is not a series about what we do. This is a series about why we do what we do. If you've been around Harbor, there is no way that you have not heard Psalm 68, 6, which says that God sets the lonely in families. And kind of all of our core values of Harbor Church flow from this verse that God sets the lonely in families. And I am convinced that one of the reasons that God sets the lonely in families is that families are a unit that make strange things normal. Families make strange things normal. It is a strange thing to eat a mug of cheese and sauce. It is, to me, a a strange thing to mandate that the engine must be shut off before every seatbelt is unbuckled. But within the unit of a family, strange things become normal. And the reason that's important to following Jesus is that following Jesus and the life that we are called to in the eyes of the world is not a normal way of life. Orienting your world around the teachings of Jesus, giving and serving and worshiping, these are strange things. But in the context of family, they become normal. And so we want to talk about the habits of this house. Because what you have to understand is that 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 5 says this. It says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. I want you to see three things within that verse that will kind of be the foundation of the entire next few weeks, which is that you, you and I are being built into a spiritual house. When we talk about the habits of the house, what we're talking about is the habits of the follower of Jesus Christ that is being built into the house of God. So I want you to realize, first of all, that you have and are part of a spiritual house. Secondly, I want you to realize within that, that within that house, you have a role. It says that within the house, each of us are called to be a priesthood. Now, this is a very important concept because often we we get it twisted where we think that there are those that are priests, there are those that are pastors, there are those that are kind of the elite followers of Jesus, and then there are those of us who just hear from those people kind of a secondhand relationship with Jesus Christ. But you were meant to be a priest that ministers to Christ, that comes to know Christ in your own personal relationship with him. 
that within the house that is being built, you have a role. And in that role, you have a responsibility to offer acceptable sacrifices. That in order to be built as the house of God, you have to understand that you are a part of a house, that you have a role, and that you have a responsibility. That there are not just a few who have a responsibility, but that we all have a responsibility in the house of God. But what I find interesting about that passage is that if there are acceptable sacrifices, then there must be unacceptable sacrifices. If there is acceptable worship, there must be worship that is unacceptable. And, and what exactly does that mean for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ? And I believe that it's played out in one of our core values, one of our core habits of this house, which is that we prioritize the presence of God, that we prioritize the presence of God. In, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, Verse one, you, you can turn there if you have your Bibles, but I want to give you a little bit of context first because this entire story kind of revolves around this, this piece of furniture that was very important to the nation of Israel. It, it kind of revolves around the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant, it's important that you know in the Old Testament was a representation of the presence of God. That within this Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Commandments that God gave the children of Israel. There was a rod that God had used to do some miraculous things. And there was a bit of manna, which was the bread that God supplied for the children of Israel as they wandered through the desert. And so this box was a reminder of God's provision and his presence. And it represented the tangible presence of God. At this time, there were priests who would go into the tabernacle and there was a veil in front of the ark and they would make sacrifices in front of that veil with this ark representing the presence of God behind it. That was the way that they worshiped. That was the way that they experienced the presence of God at this time was through this ark of the covenant set in the tabernacle. And there were a lot of rules and regulations around the Ark of the Covenant. There was a certain way that it should be treated, that it should be carried, that it should, that it should travel. And there was this point in Israel's history where the Ark of the Covenant was stolen from them. It was taken from them. But what I, what I find interesting about this season where the Ark of the Covenant was stolen from them is that the Bible says that sacrifices in the tabernacle continued. And, and so what that means is that the people of God, the children of Israel, they, they were still taking animals to sacrifice in the tabernacle in front of the veil, but there was nothing behind it. That they were actually still offering worship without the presence of God in their midst. That they were offering sacrifices with nothing behind it. They were still worshiping even though the presence of God wasn't there. There was no presence behind their worship. Israel, the people of God, had lost the presence of God. And I think it should be a sobering reality for us that there is a level of God's presence that even the people of God can lose if we do not prioritize it. That, that if we do not press into it, if we do not prioritize it, we can actually lose it. And so they chose in this moment that it would actually be too difficult to make the journey to go get the ark back than to worship without his presence. And so they chose to worship without his presence. The, the ark at this point, when we pick it up in the story, has, 
has been returned, but it's still not being valued. It's, it's back in the nation of Israel, but it still it hasn't taken its primary place as kind of the central point of their worship. And so King David decides to do a good thing. He decides to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into the center of the nation of Israel, make it their center of worship again. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter 6, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. It says, David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up from the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is thrown between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was built on a hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs and with harps, lyres, and tambourines, cisterns, and, t- and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nekon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. We're not going to completely end there, just so you know, because... That's not the most encouraging moment in the scriptures. But I do want you to get a picture of what is happening here. David is doing the right thing. And he's bringing the ark of God back into the city of Jerusalem. And he is celebrating and he is worshiping. And it says that the band is kicking, but they are not treating the presence of God with the respect and the honor that it deserves in this moment. Because see, what is happening in this moment is the Bible says that David and the men who were carrying the presence of God decided to put the presence of God on a new cart in order to get it where they wanted it to go. The problem is that the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, was not meant to be transferred on a cart. The presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, had poles that ran through it that were meant to be carried by the priest. That there were actually priests who were supposed to come in contact with the presence of God and walk with it. So in this moment, David is doing the right thing in the wrong way. Have you ever been guilty of doing the right thing in the wrong way? Because in this moment, he is worshiping, but he is not valuing the presence of God in the way that he was supposed to value the presence of God. See, I want to tell you today, and I mean this ultimately as a sense of encouragement for you to press further into the presence of God, but also as a bit of a warning that you can actually participate in worship and still not value the presence of God. That, that you can actually step in and you, you can actually participate in the habits of the house of worship, that you can be involved in worship, but, but the thing behind it, that there is no presence behind it. And that because the, the presence of God was never meant to be carried on carts. See, there is a problem with doing the right thing the wrong way. There's a problem with doing the right thing the wrong way, and it's this, that doing the right thing the wrong way works for a while, it actually works for a while. David and his men are, are having a great time traveling with the ark. They're, they're moving right along. But when you do the right thing the wrong way, it usually works for you right up until someone stumbles, 
right up until there's some uncertainty, right up until something starts to jostle your circumstances. And when you're doing the right thing the wrong way in that moment of stumbling is when you get yourself in trouble. And this is what happened in the moment when it says that Uzzah tried to put his hand up to stabilize the presence of God. Because in this moment, he breaks the protocol of how you should come in contact with the presence of God. And in some sense, it's as if Uzzah is saying, I will save the presence of God when the presence of God was meant to save Uzzah. That he's trying to get his hand on what God can do. He's trying to guide what God can do when God said, you are not meant to guide what I can do on a cart. You were meant to carry the presence of God. And, and here's why this is important to us. It's important to us because the Bible is clear that the presence of God was never meant to be carried on carts. It was meant to be carried by priests. So, so let's think back to that verse in 2 Peter that says, Now, now that Jesus has come, you are being built into a royal priesthood. That you are a priest in the house of God. What that means is that you and I are designed to carry the presence of God. That it is not meant to be put on carts, but that, that we are meant to carry the presence of God. And yet so often what we end up and do is we end up and default to our favorite carts. We end up in default to our favorite carts in order to usher in the presence of God. We, we, in this moment, something I, I've realized about David in this moment is that, is that it seems like the entire group is okay just carrying along with the celebration as long as they know someone else is handling the cart. Like, someone's got the presence. We'll just carry on. Someone, someone has the presence. And I, I think sometimes when we show up at church on the weekends, we just hope, man, I hope that the worship team has the presence this week. I, I hope that the speaker has the presence this week. I hope that somebody has the presence this week when really you and I were all designed to carry the presence together into this room. That, that if you'll hear me clearly, because this is, this is nuanced, but if you'll hear me clearly, worship was not meant to usher in the presence of God. Worship is meant to be your response to carrying in the presence of God. That you carry the presence of God into this room and worship is your response. You should not have to wait for the worship to experience the presence of God because you brought it with you. Because you carried it into this place. And think about for a moment the implications of that on a room like this. If we have one or two or three or four or five or six or seven or eight people who, who it's quote unquote their job to bring the presence into this room, to, to lead worship, to, to speak, to pray, to facilitate. If they are the ones that bring the presence into this room, then we are all depending on the measure of the presence that those eight or nine or ten people have brought in the room when what we have access to is this hundred or so people bringing the presence of God into the room and joining that together in our worship. That is the picture that God is showing us in 2 Samuel, that, that the presence of God was never meant to be carried on a cart. It was meant to be carried by priests. But the problem is so often we don't see ourselves as priests. We live in sort of an expert culture. We depend on experts for everything. I don't know how to do anything on my car. Nothing. Nothing. I tried to change the windshield wiper blades the other day. I had trouble. I know nothing. 
And we live in a culture where if you have a problem with your car, you take it to a mechanic. You take it to an expert in that field. If you have a problem with your body, you go to a medical professional. And that is very good that we have those experts, but it is very bad when that mindset leaks into the church and we think that we have professional ministers within the church who we rely on for our relationship with Jesus Christ. I am not your contact to the presence of God. You are your contact to the presence of God. You, I, I am not your only gateway into the scriptures. You are your gateway into the scriptures, into the presence of God. But we, we view this expert culture where we walk in and we think, well, I'll have him tell me what I should think about the scriptures and I'll go from there. See, when I go to get my car fixed, I don't even care if they tell me how to fix it. I just want them to fix it. And that's fine when we're talking about a car. It's fine when we're talking about an appliance. It is not okay when we're talking about our spiritual life. It is not okay when we walk into a church in our spiritual life and we say, well, they will fix everything for me. Someone has the presence in this place, but it's not me. We need to recalibrate our thinking and remind ourselves that we are priests in the house of God and that the habit of this house is to value the presence of God. I was a worship leader for 15 years. I love and I value worship. I love and I value worship. But there is actually a reason that one of our core values is not worship. Our core value that pertains to worship is prioritizing the presence of God. Because there are people who love worship but do not value the presence. There are people who love the act of worship, who love music, who love connecting with God, but they do not value the presence. And that's what we're seeing in this moment in Scripture. And the reason this is important is because if we are all priests, then we all have a role. See, I think often we, we have taken a verse that means what it means. We, we have this verse in Scripture where David is about to be anointed king, and Apparently, he does not look like somebody who would be king. Apparently, he does not look like someone who would be qualified to be king. And so we have this verse where it says that God looks at the heart of man and not the outward appearance. Now, that is true. God looks at the heart of man and not the outward appearance. But sometimes we extend that verse to mean something that it does not mean, which is that because God looks at the heart, he doesn't care what we do with our hands that it doesn't matter what we do with our hands because God only looks to the heart. And yet time after time after time in scripture, we see that God is concerned with what we do with our hands. That often what we do with our hands guides and informs and reveals the nature of our heart. That what we do with our hands guides and it, and it reveals the nature of our heart. This is why when we talk about giving, that the Bible says where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Notice that it's not where your heart is, your treasure will be. It's where your treasure is, there your heart will be. In other words, what, what that verse is saying is that when you start to give, when you start to sacrifice, then your heart will be in it. That, that you don't have to wait until your heart is in it to begin to give time and time again. The Bible talks about lifting up holy hands to God. That what we do with our hands actually matters to the condition of our heart. See, in this moment, Uzzah reaches out with his hands and touches something that he was not meant to touch. I think it's interesting if you think about the pandemic and you think about COVID-19, there were millions, if not billions of dollars spent on campaigns to tell us to do what? Wash our hands. 
wash your hands, wash your hands. There's this, there's this virus that's running rampant and the, one of the keys is to simply wash your hands, keep your hands clean. See, what happens, what you do with your hands affects the health of your heart. It affects the health of your soul. It affects the health of who you are. And if we're going to be people who value the presence of God, we have to be people who have clean hands and pure hearts. That it's not just one or the other. I don't think that it's any mistake or it's any coincidence that David, after he witnessed this moment where Uzzah reaches out his hand and tries to, in a sense, stabilize what God is doing, and he sees this moment, David later writes the psalm, give us clean hands and give us pure hearts. And we see in the Chronicles kind of reminder of this story, David says, the reason this happened in this moment is that we did not inquire of you how you wanted us to move the ark. The reason that this happened is that we did not inquire of you how you wanted us to treat your presence. And I wonder how often we are guilty of not inquiring of the Lord the steps he wants us to take. I wonder how often we are guilty of not inquiring of the Lord the steps that he wants us to take, the way that he wants us to go. See, there are some reasons that we tend to not experience the presence of God. There are reasons that we default to carrying the presence of God on carts. And the first is unclean hands. I believe that that we underestimate our actions in worship. So often when it comes to worship, we, we maybe don't engage in worship. We maybe don't participate in worship because the thought is, well, you know my heart. God knows my heart. And yet there is no other avenue in life in which that is the case. I have never been to a sporting event where a diehard fan sat in the seats, stone-faced, no idea who they're rooting for. Not celebrating, not clapping, not cheering. Something good happens and they do nothing. And at the end of the game, they say, well, you, you know my heart. You know I'm a fan. You know I'm a fan. You know my heart. You, you, know, you know I'm into this. You know my, it never happens at a sporting event. And yet it happens week in and week out in churches all across the world because we assume God knows our heart. And, and the good news is that God does know our heart, but he doesn't just want your heart. He wants your hands. God wants you to lift up hands in praise. God wants you to give of worship to him. There is an acceptable way that God desires worship from you. The Bible says that we're to worship in spirit and in truth. We like to worship in spirit because that's kind of open to how we feel. We don't necessarily like to worship in truth because it's laid out for us how God wants to receive our worship. And I think sometimes we need to realize that worship is not just a heart position. It is a hands position. That there is something that we are meant to give when we are in times of corporate worship together. That there is something that we are meant to give. The second thing that so often gets in our way of experiencing the presence of God is convenience. Convenience. Man, that cart was probably so convenient. That cart was way more efficient. That cart was way more efficient, way more convenient in that moment. It had wheels. They could roll that thing. And see, I think in this moment, what we're reminded of is that the ark was easier to carry on a cart, but that didn't mean it was better. It was easier to carry on a cart, but it didn't mean it was better. It was easier to move, but it, it wasn't the right way for it to move. See, the right way for it to move was to be carried by the priests. And, and they were going a long way. And so 
I think part of this element of putting it on a cart was this idea that they wanted the presence of God, but they didn't want the weight of it. They wanted the presence of God, but they didn't want to be responsible for the weight of it. They wanted the presence of God, but they did not want to be responsible for the weight of it. And I wonder how often we want the presence of God, but we don't want to be responsible for the weight of it. See, we have no problem wanting God's hand of provision in our lives. But when he asks for our hands, somehow we start to clam up. He, he, he wants our hands as much as we want his hand of protection. Carrying the ark was hard work. Carrying the ark was a commitment. Carrying the ark in the proper way required some sweat and some grit. It required carrying it in moments where it was hard to carry it, and it required carrying it in moments where it was easy to carry it. But the difference was that at least when the priests were carrying it, someone was actually in contact with the presence of God. See, you were meant to be in direct contact with the presence of God. This is why it's important that your relationship with Jesus is not just through uh, through someone that you, re, uh, that you view as a professional minister, but your relationship with God is a personal relationship with God. Because in those moments where it feels like the rug is pulled out from under you, you have to be sure that you are carrying the presence of God, that you are carrying the presence of God. The third thing that often causes us to miss the presence of God, the third cart that we use, as it were, is familiarity. Familiarity. We just we get too familiar with the presence of God and we quit valuing it in the way that we used to. Uh, a couple years back, our family had um, Disney passes. We had annual passes to Disney. And we went often. Our girls homeschooled at the time, and I was a worship pastor, so I was off on Mondays. And we instituted what we called Magical Mondays. And we went to Disney literally every Monday. <laughs> And, um, and we really did. We went, we, we went 52 times in 18 months. We counted. We went every Monday. Even if it was just for like a little bit of time, we went every single Monday. It was like 40 minutes from our door. So we went every single Monday. And uh, Disney is amazing. It's magical. We loved it. Our girls loved it. It was incredible. Um, but when you go that often, you get really familiar with it. You get really familiar with the rides. You get really familiar with the uh, attractions. And so what happens when you go that often is that you don't do everything that's there. You couldn't do everything that's there. If something's got an hour wait, man, we were like, we'll get that next time. We're going to go on all the stuff that's got the short waits. And there was this time where we were there, and we, we had had our passes for like a year, and we had, been, we had been a lot. We had been to Disney a whole lot, and I was waiting in line, and there was this guy uh, in line behind me who looked just like he, had, like, like he had been to Disney. This was his first trip. This was his very first trip to Disney. And he's got on like the big hat and he's clearly not from Florida. He's like from somewhere up north. And so I started talking to him. We were waiting in this line and I was like, where are you from? And he was like, oh, we're, we're from Illinois and this is our first trip to Disney and this is my son. And we, we saved up for like two years to come and we're going to be here all week and we're just going wild and it's great and um we're standing in lines quiet for a little while and he was like man i in preparation for this um i started taking my son on walks a year ago around our neighborhood and he was like we were we take walks 
And he's like, every month it'd make the walk a little bit longer and a little bit longer because I knew we were going to do a ton of walking. And I didn't want him to, I didn't want him to, you know, get too tired and poop out. Like I wanted him to enjoy it. So we've been going on walks for a year. And I was like, wow, <laughs> that's great. And um, we wait a little while. We let, and I'm, I'm not kidding you. A few minutes later, he was like, socks are key. And I was like, are they? And he was like, yeah. He was like, in, when we were preparing for the trip, we made sure we got good, we got socks that had good wicking. And I'm like, Googling wicking pulls the sweat out of the socks so you don't get blisters. And he was like, yeah, I wanted to make sure my son had socks with really good wicking. And I was like, that's great. We're in line a little longer. And he was like, how long ago did you get your uh, fast passes for this ride? I was like, I don't have a pass for this ride. I just in the line, he was like, oh, we got all our, he's like, we got all our passes about six months ago. Cause I made, I did not want to miss a single ride. I did not want to miss a single attraction. I didn't want to miss a single thing at Disney. And so we've been preparing, we've been taking walks for a year. We got the socks with the wicking and we got our fast passes months ago. And in that moment, I was thinking about my posture of Disney versus his posture of Disney. Because I was on probably trip like 30 to Disney and I did not care about the rides. I had on flip-flops, which are not good to walk in. And our girls were not really like overly into it at this point. And literally any ride that we came up on that had any weight, we were like, nah, we'll get that next time. We'll get that next time. We'll get it that next time. And if I had to be one of those two postures showing up to church, showing up to the presence of God, I want to be the guy who has prepared in advance to get everything that God has for me in that moment. I want to be the guy who has sacrificed for a year to make sure that I don't miss a single ride. I do not want to be the guy who's like, someone's going to ride that ride, but it's not going to be me. Someone's going to take that weight, but it's not going to be me. Someone's going to stand in that line, but it's not going to be me. I want to be the person who prepares and prioritizes the presence of God in such a way that I am already ready when I walk into this room, that I am already prepared when I walk in this room. I got the socks on that I need. I have walked the distance that I need to need. I don't want to have to get worked up in the presence of God. I want to carry the presence of God into this room with me so that we can worship as a community together, all carrying in the presence of God when we gather because the presence of God was not meant to be carried on carts. It was meant to be carried by human hands. It was meant to be carried by the priests and you and I, we are priests. We are a holy priesthood. And I want to call us back as a church to valuing and prioritizing the presence of God. You prioritize what you value. You prioritize what you value. You do not miss things that you value. You can tell the things that you value based on where they are in your list of priorities. You can tell what you value by how quickly it falls off that list when other things come up. You can tell the things that you value by what priority they are. And we want to be a church that prioritizes the presence of God to bring acceptable worship into this place. But if we're going to do it, if we're going to do it, we have to get rid of the carts. We, we have to stop placing the presence, the responsibility for the presence in somebody else's hands. And we have to take the responsibility of our own Beginning in verse 8, it says, Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, the place is called Perez Uzzah. 
David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside in the house of Obed-Edom. I love that part. David's like, oh, that guy got killed. I am not taking that to my house. He's like, I'm going to send that to Obed-Edom's house and see how things go. For three months, it stayed at the house of Obed-Edom and the Lord blessed him and his entire kingdom or his entire household. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark, when those who were carrying the ark, notice the difference in this moment. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might. While he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds and trumpets. And as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, watched from the window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in his heart. See, David brought the ark of the Lord this time with the proper people carrying it, with the proper people carrying it. And he's worshiping, it says, in a linen ephod. By the way, a linen ephod, that's the socks with good wicking. That's an outfit that you can sweat in. That's an outfit that that a king would never wear. That's an outfit that only a priest would wear. And a priest would wear a linen ephod because it was cooler. And so he did not want to sweat when he was in the presence of God. He did not want to get his own sweat into the presence of God. And so he wore lighter clothing. A king would never wear that unless the king understood that he was not just a king. He was a priest. A king would never wear that unless he understood that his role and his position was underneath the priority of the presence. That his position as king was underneath his priority as a priest. And so he said, I'm putting on a linen ephod. I'm putting on the socks with good wicking. And I'm going to dance before the Lord in such a moment of exuberant praise that some people will despise me for it. But whatever it takes, I'm going to make sure that the ark of God gets carried into the center of our lives in the appropriate way. And we have to be a people who are willing to prepare for the presence in such a way that when we come into this place, we say, it doesn't matter what it takes. It doesn't matter what people think. It doesn't matter if I'm despised for it. I'm going to carry the presence of God into this moment because my position and the way I look and the way I'm perceived does not matter as much as the priority of the presence in this place. Would you stand with me this morning? 